Marcion is one of the earliest and most seditious heretics the church ever encountered. In the 140s CE, it was only the third generation of Christianity when the demonic teacher from Pontus started spreading his false teaching, that the God of the Old Testament, the Creator, was a wicked God, that the creation itself is tainted with that God's faults, that Jesus is the good God who comes to save us from the Old One. And still today, Christians buy into the idea that the God of the Old Testament is worse than the God of the New. They reject the Old Testament God, the wrathful one, in favor of a more palpable God who makes them feel good. A God who doesn't judge. A God who doesn't punish. Well, that's what a lot of people think. And as always, we're here to muddy the waters a bit. Podcastica Patristica, and thanks for joining us for this episode on Marcion. We're very glad that you're joining us today. Today also is a very special episode for us because we are doing a test run of an unscripted episode. We, in the past, have scripted our episodes and just read out the scripts to get clarity, but now we want to try and give a more dialogue feel to make it more engaging listening. So if you could get on our Twitter page or our Facebook page and write us a note to tell us which you like better, the old scripted style or this new dialogue style, that would be really helpful for us. Also helpful is getting on iTunes and rating and reviewing us. That is incredibly helpful, more than you can imagine. But Tyler... What are you drinking today? Today I am drinking Waco Winery's Sweet Moscato. And I think it really fits well with the whole Marcion bit because Marcion wanted a sweet kind of god. He didn't want anything harsh, you know, it's not like uh, someone who drinks wild turkey or anything like that. But it's a sweet god, one who doesn't really hurt. And uh, so that's what I'm drinking today. Uh, We also want to say that we apologize to those of you who are waiting for our Gnosticism episode. Um, We, well, I just recently graduated from Truett, finishing my master's degree, so that's fun. Uh, We also started a business, Patristica Press, and Tyler and I and our friend Jake, who was on the uh, Emperor Worship and American Idolatry episode. And we also published a book and have another book coming up soon. Uh, Tyler, you want to tell us about that first book? Yes, I can tell you about it. Um, Gerhard and I and Jake, who started this business, uh, we wrote a book on divine providence, which is the issue of how God relates to the world and how God chooses to control the world or not control the world. And so it's a conversation between a Calvinist, Gerhard, an Arminian, which is Jake, and an open theist, which is me. <laughs> it's a collection of essays and responses. And uh, there are already books like this out on the market, which are fine. But our book is different in that we are best friends. We uh, spend time together multiple times a week and obviously close enough to start a business together. So uh, we are demonstrating that you can have this conversation as close friends because this is an extremely contentious issue for some reason we aren't just strangers lobbing bombs at each other so if you want to check out that book you can find it at patristicapress.com and gerhard has a book coming out soon as well yeah um today's episode on marcion is going to talk a lot about the old testament um and i just wrote a book sort of on the old testament um it's called magic and technology and it's in large part Um, an interpretation of Genesis 1 through 11. Um, And my thesis in the book is that Genesis 1 through 11 is a warning against magic and technology, which this is too complicated to explain in the podcast, but that those, even if they seem like different things, are actually the same. 
and that magic and technology are both ways that humans try to become God and recreate the world in ways they would like it. So that will be available September 6th if you want to buy it. And if you go to our Facebook page, not the podcast, but Patristica Press's Facebook page, um, you can find more information about it. And is that book more on a, uh, like, what level of reader should read that? Is this for, like, experts on the Old Testament? Do you have to know much about the Old Testament to read it? You don't have to know anything about the Old Testament at all. Um, the audience I'm envisioning is anyone from someone who can read basic English and knows what a Bible is to, uh, say, someone who is a relatively thoughtful person with a seminary education. It's not a scholarly um, book, so it's not overflowing with footnotes with a thousand words a page, um, but it does, I think, deal with issues relatively thoroughly. Sounds good. So let's get into this. Let's think about Marcion a little bit. I think Marcion is probably one of the more abused heretic. Right up there with Arius. Yeah, in the sense that people like to call each other this name. Usually it is people on the more conservative side of the spectrum calling people on the opposite side Marcionites because they don't have the same view of the authority of scripture, especially with the Old Testament. Um, so if you don't think that God actually commanded the genocide of the, Can the Canaanites, then you must be a Marcionite because you reject the Old Testament and you think that God is bad. Uh, that, that that God portrayed there is bad. So that's not a very careful reading of Marcion or Marcion's opponents, which is people like Irenaeus and Justin Martyr and Tertullian. So hopefully in this episode we'll be able to give you a, a better understanding of specifically Tertullian's take on Marcion and Marcion himself, and then that'll kind of help us navigate the issues today because this is a very contentious issue still. And a really important issue. Um, and everyone, like, we have this Bible with this confusing set of texts, and Marcion did what was probably in his mind the best thing to do to uh, deal with these difficult texts, and we have to do the same today. So maybe by talking a bit about Marcion, uh, we can learn what we should do with the inspiring but also sometimes troubling Old Testament. Yeah. And learn how to be more gracious toward people like Marcion, who, as wrong as they may be, are trying. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of people who are trying, uh, this was all sparked by the controversy of Brian Zahn's new book, uh, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Um, neither of us have read it, and so we won't be interacting with Zahn directly, obviously, but his book and the way... Um, that people perceive it to be treating the Old Testament has revived accusations of Marcionism. Um, a lot of people are calling Zond a neo-Marcionite. And while Tyler and I, since we haven't read the book, can't weigh in on whether Zond himself is, this brings up the perennial question of how Christians deal with the Old Testament. And we know plenty of people who do uh, the sort of thing that people accuse Zond of doing. So we thought it was a good time to start talking about the issue. Yeah, and I have read a bit of Zond. And so while we will often on criticize the perspective Zond is coming from, I want to put out at the forefront that Zond has actually been really helpful for me in some areas of my theological life. Um, I am a pacifist now, and Zond helped me move in that direction. Um, he, I think, does a good job of teaching the radical peace of Christ. Um, and so in a lot of ways, he uh, is very helpful. And just because we may disagree with him on some of these issues, uh, we don't want to do to him what has been done to Marcion and Arius <laughs> and all the other heretics. Um, we want to be fair. So... Um, Let's talk a little bit about Marcion and his background. 
Like, do you want to do the traditional perspective or do you want me to? Go for it. Okay. Um, so our professor, David Wilhite at Truett Seminary, uh, my former professor now, uh, wrote this little book called The Gospel According to Heretics. And it really is a very accessible, very popular level Bible of heretics. Um, and we have used this book several times throughout our episodes. We can't recommend it highly enough. It's great. Uh, we even interviewed Dr. Wilhite recently. Was it for the last episode? There was the Two one episodes that. ago? I think it was episode eight on Tertullian. Yeah. So, and uh, against Marcion, which is one of Tertullian's things, yeah. figured pretty heavily in that interview. So this is a good pair, uh, one to listen to with that. But... This Gospel According to Heretics book um, does an excellent job of giving, in a really bullet point fashion, the traditional view of Marcion's life. Literally a bullet point fashion. <laughs> yeah, it's A through G, and then he tells you, like, this is what scholars think is real, this is what's not. Um, but I'll give a few uh, bullet points of Marcion's life. So, first of all, one thing we know is that Marcion is from Pontus, which is a province in Rome. This was originally, this is not from the book. Um, this is from other things. But the rest of the bullet points will be from the book. Uh, Pontus was originally a, I think, a Persian kingdom. And then in 67 BC, uh, Pompey, I heard I hear people call him Pompey, which I think is fun, but I've <laughs> always said Pompey in 67 uh, conquers it and it becomes a Roman province I guess so by Marcion's time which is in the 140s or so is when he's active maybe a bit after that it's been Roman for quite some time and one thing we do know for pretty sure about Marcion is that he is from this post-Persian Roman province called Pontus one thing important about Pontus, and this is from Dr. Wilhite's book, uh, is that Pontus had a lot of ship activity around. And so he was a wealthy ship owner, according to tradition. So Tyler, how does that stack up with critical scrutiny? So the fact that he is a wealthy ship owner is we only know this from people like Tertullian. We, the facts that we have about Marcion are only from his enemies. So the fact that he's a ship owner could be a way to discredit him because what were the disciples before they were disciples? They were fishermen. They had ships and they went out and fished with those ships. So Marcion is the opposite of a disciple. Marcion is uh, a worldly man, a sinful man who didn't become a disciple. So that could be the reason that he is said to have a boat. But that's it's all flimsy. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, take it or leave it. I'm inclined to take it. Yeah. Um, also, he's wealthy. I think this is probably still true, actually. But some people say that wealth is also a way to discredit him because, you know, you're not supposed to be wealthy if you're a Christian because you're giving your money away. Uh, another one, he, this is a quote from Dr. Wilhite's book. Um, he gave a very large gift to the church in Rome on his arrival there. I did the math in a very sketchy kind of provisional way, and I figured out that this is a third of a million dollars uh, that traditionally he gave to the church in Rome. 200,000 sesterces, which is a third of a million dollars in today's terms. Or maybe he was just bribing the church in Rome. Maybe he was trying to get his own power or to make himself look good, perhaps. We'll never know. Never know. And uh, the tradition says that once the church at Rome realized what an awful, horrible person Marcin the heretic was, they gave him back his donation. So <laughs> they were unlike the churches today uh, that will never give back a donation for moral reasons. They'll just let those people run the church. Unlike uh -oh. today's churches, <laughs> they give the money back. So his mentor and I don't know what you want to call it, like person who taught him. His master was a renowned heretic named Serdo. What does that sound like, Tyler? Does that sound plausible? 
I don't know anything about Surdo, actually. Yeah, neither do I. Does anyone know anything about Surdo? I don't know. Probably. That's all we got. Uh, next one. Marcion's father was a bishop who excommunicated Marcion for either seducing or raping one of the virgins who worked at the church. Is that true, Tyler? Uh, that's really unlikely to be true. <laughs> yeah, it's totally false. There's yeah. no chance that that's true. That's obvious slander. And the last one, um, last two actually, uh, Marcion recanted his teachings later in life. This is obviously more slander. There's no evidence of this really. And one thing that is apparently true is that Marcion was a pescatarian. So the only vegans and vegetarians in the ancient world were all the heretics. Mm. Um, but now we are the orthodox. That's right. Because Gerhard and I are both vegans. And there's also a book coming out on that soon. Yeah. Eventually. Which, yeah. Anyway. And with Marcion repenting later in life, the idea is that uh, I think it's Tertullian is the one who gives us that little piece of information. And it's an attempt to say, you know, if Marcionism is still a problem, you can say, oh, look, even your leader recognized that this is trash. So Slander. there's no evidence that he ever repented of it. All right. So that's Marcion's life. What did Marcion teach? You want to take the lead on this one, Tyler? Yeah. So Marcion's teachings are really interesting so first you have marcion's bible maybe we should just start with marcion's bible um from what we understand marcion had a version of the gospel of luke which was highly edited and the belief is that that marcion took the gospel of luke and just cut out all the stuff he didn't like and all the stuff that he didn't like were things about the jews and their god so marcion hated the god of the old testament so he had the gospel of luke highly edited and uh was it 10 letters of paul and that was his bible and he rejected everything else um, because what he saw was the god of the old testament is evil and wicked and wrathful and mean and so if that god is wicked and wrathful and mean and Jesus comes to save us, well, then that's what Jesus is saving us from. And if that God is wicked and wrathful and mean, and if that God created the universe, then that means that creation itself is also not just fallen, but inherently uh, wicked, inherently problematic. So this means that Marcion taught some sort of dualism between uh, flesh and spirit. He preferred the spiritual realm and thought that we needed to get rid of the flesh. The flesh is a prison, uh, something that we need to escape from. And if that's true, and if Jesus is the perfect God, then that means that Jesus never had a physical body. Jesus didn't have a body made of the same kind of stuff that our bodies are made of. So that means that Marcion also taught some form of docetism and docetism is a heresy different from marcionism and it comes from the greek word dokeo which means um like to th to think or to seem so docetism is the idea that it seems like flesh that jesus's flesh seemed like it was real but it actually wasn't so Marcion's teaching was just a smorgasbord of false teaching, heresy, bad stuff. Stay away from it. So Gerhard, now you can help us out. Tell us about Marcion's Bible. Uh, that, I think, is one of the most interesting things about Marcion is his relationship to Luke, especially. We do know pretty firmly that Luke, uh, as Marcion had it, was edited down, or at least it was smaller than the Luke that we have today. There's debate whether Marcion had the first version of Luke and later Orthodox writers expanded it, um, or if Marcion himself took the full Luke that we have today and cut it down. Um, but to bring him up again, our professor at Truett David Wilhite has a really interesting theory that I'm at least convinced by that uh, what Marcion, Marcion didn't cut away his uh, 
cut away at Luke and he didn't have something like proto-Luke. What Marcion had was Luke as handed to him already edited down. The logic of this argument runs in this way. So first of all, you've got Christianity and it comes to the Jews because Jesus is a Jewish Messiah and, and so all the Christians come out of Judaism. But you have all these other people interested in Judaism coming from Gentile backgrounds and you have Jewish missionaries like Paul going out to bring the gospel to non-Jewish peoples. And so in the minds of some uh, innovative missionaries, they thought, well, the Gentiles don't need all this uh, provincial Jewish stuff. That's all true and good and whatnot. But Gentiles won't understand these allusions to the Old Testament, all these uh, symbols from the Old Testament. So they whittled down uh, the Gospels and the collection of Paul's letters to a think of it as a missionary tract. Um, they didn't think of it as the whole scripture. They just thought this is all that a new Gentile person would need to understand the gospel of Jesus in their own, we might call it today, missional context. It's like a chick track version of Luke. Yeah, or a Gideon's Bible, right? That's what yeah. we do with our Gideon's Bibles, except we don't cut within the books. Uh, this is just a missional practice that had some unfortunate ramifications in the ancient world because Marcion was converted under this um, this missional tactic and he believed the Bible that those missionaries handed him, which was the New Testament with these Jewish sections taken out. And so it wasn't until later that he encountered Christians who had this bigger, more expanded Bible and he thought, oh my God, these people and their Bible is awful. Like, this God is nothing like the God that the missionaries and the Bible that they handed me believed and uh, worship. And one interesting article um, mentioned that Marcion might have thought of the people who added in those, what he might have called Judaizing texts, were the... Um, false brothers that snuck into the faith that Paul talks about in Galatians. So Paul talks about the people who are either from the Apostle James or claimed to be by the Apostle James, and he calls them Judaizers. And they're sneaking in to spy out the freedom we have in Christ. You can read all about this in Galatians. And some of the evidence for this uh, theory of Marcion receiving an already edited version of Luke is that he doesn't actually, he, he's, his version of Luke still has stuff that talks about uh, the Old Testament God that still talks about the Jews. And actually, there are several times when Tertullian says, Marcion, you're so stupid. You didn't even see all these other passages about the Old Testament God, all these other passages about the Jews. Well, what if Marcion's not stupid? What if Marcion's Bible just already came like that? Marcion wasn't trying to get rid of it. Actually, Funny thing is that there are several times when Tertullian says that Marcion edited out all these verses, and it turns out those verses were never actually in Luke in the first place. So Tertullian is accusing Marcion of getting rid of verses that were never in Luke. That's not in the King James Version. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, I think, an excellent argument to back up Dr. Will Height's theory. And... To be clear, he did get that theory from others. Oh, really? Yeah, he wasn't the first. Oh, I thought it was his. I did too, but oh, well. he, he's got plenty of footnotes to back it up. So, If you want those footnotes, you can see some books somewhere. Yeah. Uh, okay, so that was Marcion's Bible. Those two different ways of looking at it, or three different ways of looking at it, will determine how this question gets settled as well. So there's a question of whether Marcion believed whether he really believed in two different gods, one good and one bad, or whether Marcion believed the real God is good and this Old Testament God is bad. And uh, I like the way Tyler says it often that it's like ancient Jews would have said, they would have talked about the gods of the Canaanites or we, together, we today might talk about the gods of Hinduism, but we don't really believe in the gods of Hinduism and the ancient Jews wouldn't have actually believed in the other Canaanite gods. And so Marcion wasn't talking about 
a real god versus a real god he was talking about the real good god versus a fake bad god that's one option um and the other option is just that one god is good one god is bad and they're in eternal conflict uh, later marcionites will talk about um, they will change marcion's language from a good god versus an evil god to the just god of the old testament and the love god of the new testament so if if the old testament god is bad and actually is the creator then that means that creation is bad in marcion's logic well it turns out that's mainly just tertullian's way of um that's Tertullian's rhetorical way of making Marcion look bad. Marcion never actually said these things. He never said that flesh is bad and evil. Um, Marcion actually did believe that Jesus was flesh and talks about Jesus going into hell um, after dying to... Um, uh, what am, what's the word I'm looking for? The harrowing of the hell. The harrowing of hell. Uh, Marcion talks about that. So he clearly believes that Jesus died in the flesh and so we have to be careful with how much of tertullian we're going to accept and this goes back to the conversation we had with dr will Hyatt, uh for episode again i think it was episode eight um he explained you have to kind of read tertullian with a grain of salt um, understand that he's using rhetorical devices he was a trained rhetorician. He knew how to use words to convince people. And in Tertullian's education, what was most important was to convince people, um, not to get exact to the detail truth. That doesn't mean that lying was exactly tolerated um, so much as it was that you can exaggerate, you can invent things which doesn't mean fabricate things, uh, to make your point. So if Marcion didn't actually believe that the Old Testament God was real, if Marcion didn't actually believe that the creation itself is problematic, then we already have a very different Marcion than the one we've been given. And then... Um, the last idea that we have is that Marcion believed that Jesus didn't raise physically. And this seems to be his actual belief. And Gerhard, I think, has some things to say on the heavenly versus physical ideology. Yeah, so Marcion um, did not believe in the physical resurrection um, either of Jesus or of anyone else. And... Surprise, surprise, you may not either. Um, it's a very common thing these days to not reject the physical resurrection. If you were to ask people, do you believe in the physical resurrection? They would say, yes, of course I do. Um, some people from the more liturgical traditions would say, yes, of course I do, because the creed we recite says that. Uh, but when you press them on it, they don't really believe that at the time of judgment that Jesus is going to come back and raise all people from the dead, and then people will live on this earth a physical existence for eternity. What they probably think, um, probably unreflectively, is that Christians die and go to heaven um, is the stock phrase, and that we live in a heaven for all eternity. You know, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll have no less days to yada yada. Like, so that's where the discussion of harps and clouds and all that stuff comes from um and i've been interested in this topic for a while i think it probably starts in early medieval days and continues till the present i mean it's definitely present in people like saint francis um, and that's relatively early that's that's well before the reformation um i think a few hundred years before the reformation and it continues down to this day um but according to Paul in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, this is ex like this is one of the very few explicit heresies according to the New Testament to say that people go to heaven when they die um, rather than are physically raised for Paul is heresy. And we know that Marcion did believe this thing. And this is in 1 Corinthians 15. The logic is that 
if you aren't physically raised, then Jesus wasn't physically raised. And to say that Jesus wasn't physically raised is a heresy for Paul. But the thing that actually sparks his interest is that the Corinthians were saying that humans like you and I won't be physically raised. We'll just go to heaven when we die. And uh, that's a topic that N.T. Wright gets at in his book, Surprised by Hope, which is really good and really formative uh, for me, at least. Um, He talks about this tendency of people to not, I mean, like you said, they, it's just unreflective. We don't really think about these things a lot. But also, like you said, this was absolutely central for Paul. And it's something that should be more consistent in our lives, something that we actually reflect on and think about um, what is resurrection and what does that mean for us, especially as we live in this world now. Like, does this world matter to us now? And how do we relate to the world as it is now if we're just going to escape it then who cares, which is the attitude that I hear pretty explicitly expressed by a lot of people, um, especially with climate change. I've heard, you know, Christians say, God's going to burn it up anyway, who cares? So our view on resurrection, which is a very important topic for the Apostle Paul, does impact the way we think through those issues. Yeah, and beyond, um, not beyond, in harmony with that point not only does what will happen to the earth after jesus comes back um, matter but also how we treat the earth right now not environmentally but just in the way we think about i hate this word but i'm going to use it the value of the earth like the value of life now Um, i remember in high school i got in my friend's car and saw a book with the worst possible title. Uh, It was The One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. Um, And that one thing that you can't do in heaven is evangelize. Um, And I don't know anything about the book other than the title. I don't even know who wrote it. I doubt it's a fine book, but who the hell knows? (laughs) I haven't read it. Um, But that just got me thinking about our tendency to not only hurt the earth if we leave it, but also um, trivialize the earth um, and trivialize our own lives on the earth. And so thinking in terms of heaven orients our eyes upward, not in the sense that we think about our lives from a Christian perspective, which is obviously the right thing to do, but that we stop thinking about our lives at all. We stop thinking about um, relationships for relationships own sake. We stop thinking about hobbies for hobbies' own sake, work for work's own sake. It all becomes, how do I translate this into something that's worth something for eternity? Um, While it may have some value in what it was trying to say, there are really unfortunate um, surrounding issues with, was it, uh, who was that famous missionary who said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose? Um, It was one of the early Baptist missionaries And while that's, I mean, it's fine for the point that it is making, it does say that your life really doesn't matter. All that matters is where you're going to spend your eternity. And I think that's a really sad um, way to approach life and runs directly counter to the message of Ecclesiastes, which says the opposite, which is also Christian scripture and is Old Testament. So that pulls us back. We mentioned at the beginning that what spurred this whole conversation, what made us decide to do an episode on Marcion, was the idea that people today are being called Marcionites or Neo-Marcionites. And so now we've problematized what a Marcionite is in the first place. Marcion didn't say the things that he's accused of saying, or at least we have no evidence that he says these things. All we have are Irenaeus and Tertullian and Justin Martyr and Hippolytus, all these people who hated Marcion. We only have their record of what he said. And as we see with people like Arius, these are it's problematic to base all of our views on just what enemies say. So now that this is all problematic, we don't know Marcion himself, The church did ultimately deny 
certain teachings. Whether or not Marcion believed this or that, the church did come together and together decide these are false teachings, and they affirmed other teachings. So we want to be clear that while we do want to problematize your view of what is heresy and what did these heresies, what did these heretics think, we, we don't want to destroy orthodoxy. We don't want to bring it tumbling down. Um, we want to uphold as much tradition insofar as that tradition is faithful to the apostolic witness. So, Gerhard, what would you say are the things that the church rejected and the things that the church affirmed when it comes to Marcion specifically? I think there's two... Um fundamentally important issues um one we have theology proper um the words that we say about god um, and god there being specific not all the tangential issues but what do we say about the three persons of the trinity um and marcion either wanted to problematize and cut up sections of scripture or cut up members of the trinity um, and those are the two issues that the church said, no, we are going to retain these both. And so on the one hand, uh, whereas, well, you know, whether or not Marcion said it, the church said that Marcion said it. Uh, I want to be clear about that. One of the things that the church was very passionate to affirm is that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. There is no splitting into a good God and a bad God. There is one God, and Jesus is that God. And whatever the scriptures say about God generally is true of Jesus. And this brings us to the second point that the church passionately affirmed is that the Old Testament is the Christian's book. Um, not necessarily saying that it's not other people's books as well, but for us, the Old Testament is a holy book. And we, um, however we think of to read it faithfully, however we think of to read it new, in a nuanced way, we have to be very uh, firm and find a way to say with honesty, this is our holy book. And even if we're going to subterfuge that by saying we're reading it in a different way, rather the the witness of the church that wanted to affirm something said that we have to find a way to hold on to this set of ancient important texts as Christian scripture, and we can't reject them either outright honestly or through some sort of hermeneutical subterfuge that says, but we read these in a different way that amounts to the same thing as rejecting it. That was a long, complex way to say two things. Jesus is the monotheistic God of the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is the Christian's book. Okay, so people in the tradition, if we want to call it that, of Brian Zond and uh, Greg Boyd would probably fall into this camp. Um, Rene Girard, people who are questioning the the portrayal of God in the Old Testament. Can we call them, in any sense, Marcionites or Neo-Marcionites? Because ultimately, this is the logic. Um, this is the logic that most people in this tradition use. I don't want to pinpoint anyone because I don't want to misrepresent anyone. But generally speaking, the logic is the Old Testament and the New Testament are written by humans who are doing their best to understand and portray God. And the people of the Old Testament had not yet met Jesus. And Jesus is God's revelation, the fullness of God in the flesh. So if Jesus is the fullness of God, then all we have to do is look at Jesus to see who God is. And when we look at the Old Testament, we see some things that don't seem very Jesus-y, like the Canaanite conquest in the book of Joshua, um, like some of the portrayals of God given by the prophets when they talk about God raising up these armies to come and absolutely destroy you and devastate your land and make you all homeless. 
So what many people say is, since we know what Jesus looks like based on the New Testament, we can sort of use Jesus as a lens and we look at the Old Testament and sometimes things don't look like Jesus. So we can say, okay, those are human attempts to understand God. And then the times whenever we see the Old Testament God being gracious and merciful and kind and compassionate, we can say this is where the Old Testament authors got closer. They were catching glimpses of the true God. And so it's only when we get Jesus himself that we can actually see what God has to say to the world. Um, Actually, one of Brian Zahn's uh, favorite things to say is Jesus is what God has to say. And so if the Old Testament or New Testament in any place says something different than what Jesus is, then it's to be, I don't, I mean, I don't want to be too harsh. Maybe he wouldn't say rejected, but it's, it's a problem. I think rejected is fair. Um, I think functionally it is rejected. Which we don't have some grand theory of the Old Testament to offer you. Um, We just want to help you think through these things and think through these things with you. Um, But one problem I see in that method is the same problem, actually, that Luther had... um, and that Lutheranism sometimes still has of thinking of the gospel as authoritative. So think with me about this. Uh, Let's call it progressivism for easy um, label's sake. Progressivism um, says that Jesus is the authority, and therefore anything in scripture that doesn't measure up to the standard of Jesus like we said, should be relativized, should be rejected. This is very similar to what Luther did with what he called the gospel, um, which, if you know Luther at all, really just meant Luther's idea of how salvation works. It meant justification by faith alone, uh, or by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, where his hope was found. Um, So Luther famously went through the Bible and rejected any parts that didn't measure up to justification by grace through faith. And the only really time this pertinently comes up, um, because Luther has all sorts of reading strategies and he's not uh, some 19th century German Protestant reader uh, who is really generous in the way he finds contradictions. Luther, as a medieval man, wanted to see the Bible is all true, all authoritative, but he had a special problem with James because James has that line, a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Um, And Luther famously called the book of James the epistle of straw. Now, what Luther functionally does there is says, James is not authoritative because it doesn't live up to the gospel. What Luther probably should have done is said, instead of measuring the book of James and Christian scripture by his idea of what the gospel is, functionally by his theology, he should have measured what he thought the gospel is by the book of James and tried to find a way to um, synthesize the um, theology of Galatians as he found it with the book of James to find a more robust theology as contemporary Lutherans have done and has... um, just Protestantism in general has done. In a similar way, what we've called progressivism, and that's not a slander, most people, including ourselves, would think of Tyler and I as progressives. Um, Progressivism goes through the Bible, Old and New Testaments, as Tyler has mentioned, and cuts out all the things that it doesn't like by saying those things don't measure up to Jesus. Ironically, A lot of the things that Jesus says have to be cut out because they don't measure up to Jesus. Um, So Tyler mentioned the fact that God is a judge in the Old Testament and he's raising up armies to come and, you know, destroy all the wicked sinners, say, in the Minor Prophets. Well, Jesus says that Um, in the parable of the vineyard where uh, a man has a vineyard, he lets it out to tenants and then he sends person and person and person and finally... Uh, his son 
Um, the context of that is the destruction of Jerusalem. And so what Jesus, the historical Jesus, or Jesus as the Gospels present him to us at least, says is that the interpretation of the parable is uh, God sent all these prophets to you, Israel, and you didn't listen. And finally, God sent God's son, which is Jesus himself. And the leaders of the Jewish faith killed um, Jesus, just as they did the prophets. And so God is coming to, according to the parable, take the vineyard from them and give it to others who will produce their fruit. That is clearly a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and the Jewish temple. So God, according to Jesus in the New Testament, is raising up armies to come and destroy people because they're wicked sinners. That is the exact same thing that people cut out of um, the Old Testament using this quote-unquote Jesus hermeneutic, even though this is, I mean, almost exactly what Jesus himself says. Yeah, I think this is this is an old problem, the question of the wrath of God and the love of God. And I think that one really helpful person to walk through this question of the wrath of God is actually um, another North African father, like Tertullian. His name is Lactantius. And he wrote a work called On the Wrath of God. And basically he argues, he was dealing with people as well who said, God has no wrath. God is just love. And Lactantius says, if you have a God without wrath, then you also have a God without love. He says, quote, for if God is not angry with the impious and the unjust, then to be sure, neither does he love the pious and the just. So the error of those who take away both anger and kindness together is a more consistent one. So if you want to be consistent and say that God isn't wrathful, then you have to be also saying that God is also not loving. Because those two are sides of the same coin. I mean, I think it was Augustine who also said that, you know, the wrath of God is love wrongly received. If God loves the child being abused, then God will take out God's wrath on the abuser. That's how God's love works. Um, that's how any of our love works. Whenever we love someone and see them being harmed, we enact justice or seek justice, which means some form of punishment, even if it's ultimately for the purpose of redemption, punishment is a part of how we consider justice to be enacted. So if God is loving, then God also has to be wrathful. If you say God is not wrathful, then you also have to say God is not loving. And if God is not loving or wrathful, then how is God sovereign? If God doesn't love the just and take out his anger on the unjust, then God just watches everything happen. What you end up is a functional deism. You have to have both. You have to have the wrath and the love, which are both portrayed over and over in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And I think that it's an overly simplistic reading to say that Jesus is just loving and never wrathful, and therefore we can reject these apparently disturbingly wrathful parts of the Old Testament. Again, like Gerhard said, we don't have a great fully formed theology of how to tell you to read the Old Testament. We wouldn't presume to do that anyway. But what we want to say is the trends that we're seeing, the polarization between overly simplistic readings is only harmful, and we need to have a more nuanced and a more intellectually honest conversation about what it looks like to have the Old Testament as part of our canon. And there are overly simplistic readings that just make everything absolutely literal and don't question anything and don't take the time to see that there are difficulties, which even the Orthodox Fathers recognized. And then the other simplistic way that we've been critiquing of rejecting the things that don't look as nice as we prefer them to be.
So the question we have is, how do you read them both? How do you have a canon that includes these both? And what the heck is a canon in the first place? Well, the word canon uh, comes from the Greek word canon. And (laughs) (laughs) uh, I think it meant like a stick that you measure things against, like a basically a big ruler. Um, So in metaphorical terms, the Bible... Um, if we talk about the Bible as canon or whatever we talk about as canon, that is the thing you measure other things against. And so um, the canon is the authoritative thing in the sense that whatever doesn't measure up to it should be rejected and whatever it does measure up to it should be accepted. And so that, so when we say that the Bible is canon um, in whatever sense we mean it, if we're taking that phrase really seriously, we don't necessarily mean that the Bible is a good and inspiring book. Um, We are saying that the Bible is the guide to when we decide that other good and inspiring books' messages should be accepted or rejected. Uh, A canon is how you decide whether, um, I don't know, John MacArthur or Rob Bell, like, Whichever one measures up to the canon better is the one that you should accept. Or at least the te- the specific teachings that they're giving at one point or another can oh, be accepted. Yeah, not one person. Yeah. That would be awful just to... None of us would be accepted. Right, yeah. <laughs> so like uh, when Tyler and I talk about notions of divine providence, does God know the future or not? Um, in what sense might God know the future? Uh, does God cause things to happen, everything to happen or not? In what sense is God responsible for things? What we do is we measure what we say up to the canon to see which one measures up better to the measuring rod of Scripture. Now, if that's true, um, then Marcionism and what's being thrown today around as Neo-Marcionism or this... uh, what we maybe misleadingly call progressivism, I don't think it really treats scripture as a canon. Um, and that that's not necessarily to say it's wrong or to say it's right for that matter, but it doesn't treat scripture as a canon because scripture is not a thing that claims are me- measured against. Um, scripture itself is being measured up to a higher claim, which is called Jesus, but I don't think that it's actually Jesus, since a lot of the things that Jesus says are actually measured and found wanting. Um, my suspicion is it's just modern Western sentiment that is the actual functional canon by which Jesus and the rest of Scripture are measured. So it's the same problem which you've already mentioned. Luther was Luther had an idea of what the gospel was and rejected things that didn't measure up to his canon, which was his own interpretation of the gospel. Yeah. More scripture got into his canon than does modern progressives. But modern progressives have this idea of who Jesus is and measure everything against their idea of who Jesus is. Yeah. Not Jesus, importantly. Their idea of who Jesus is. And to be fair, we are... I mean, Gerhard and I are good postmoderns. We recognize that we all come with baggage to our reading of scripture. We all have ideas of what Jesus aims to, of how Jesus wants us to live our lives. We have different ideas of specific doctrines. I mean, I personally am a pacifist. Gerhard agrees with more along the lines of the just war theory. Um, Those are differences and both based on our understandings of Jesus' teaching. So biases exist. We all come to the text with biases. But the problem is, on the progressive side, I am afraid that those biases aren't admitted, and it's just sort of a naive, almost literalism. Uh, I mean, they're handling the text in the same way, just choosing which things they're taking literally. Like, this is the literal Jesus that I see, and I'm rejecting anything that isn't this. 
And so it's this, it's almost an equal fundamentalism on both sides that are both naive, both dangerous. Um, but as we wrap it up, maybe the question is, is that Marcionism? If we reject pieces of the Old Testament because it doesn't line up with our picture of Jesus, is that verging on Marcionism? Is it somewhere along the spectrum of Marcionism? Because, as I explained earlier, the progressive wing who espouses this particular hermeneutic, what they're trying to do is read the Old Testament in light of Jesus. They believe that Jesus is Yahweh. Marcionism, the kind of Marcionism that the church rejected, said that the Old Testament God is a completely different thing than Jesus. These people are not saying that. They're reinterpreting the Old Testament God in light of how they understand Jesus. So is that Marcionism in any sense of the word? So the problem here, um, as always, is that words are slippery. So can we call the modern movement neo-Marcionism, given that they clearly don't reject the Yahweh of the Old Testament, um, but rather reinterpret the portrayal of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Um, yeah, I mean, in some senses you can, in some you can't. You can't say that they're Marcians in the sense that they uh, believe all of the essential points that Marcian makes. But you might be able to say that the modern movement is a neo-Marcianism if instead of talking about a specific set of... Um, points like a creed that they all believe and that share in common with Marcion and instead think of neo-Marcionism in the sense of like a broad uh, broad similarity between what's happening today and what is traditionally known as Marcionism and so instead of um, making a firm distinction between Old Testament God bad, New Testament God good, instead of making that sort of a vertical cut between the two eras or between the two sets of books, instead what modern um, progressives sometimes tend to do is make a horizontal cut and say these parts of the Old Testament are good, these parts of the Old Testament are bad, these parts of the New Testament are good, these parts of the New Testament are bad. And they, I mean, in effect, do away with the parts that they deem bad. And so this seems to me to be very similar, if not the exact same thing uh, that Marcion does um, in the sense that it is finding things that are, that one doesn't like in scripture and then cutting away the passages of scripture that they don't like. Um, for whatever reasons. So maybe yes, maybe no, depending on what we mean by the word Marcionite or Neo-Marcionite. What do you think, Tyler? I don't know. So my, just the thought that was going on in my head just then was, okay, so you and I, as we read historical critical scholarship that talks about, for instance, the Canaanite conquest and we see that it didn't actually happen in the way that we often think that there wasn't a genocide um actually a lot of these groups lived together israelites and other groups um the story is a lot more complicated a lot more nuanced so we are interpreting bible passages in light of these other texts which are historical critical scholarship that is being done today, you know, 2,500 years later, long time later. So are we making this historical critical scholarship our new canon? Hmm. And is that a Marcionism just with a different canon? I I mean, because we were saying that, you know, like Martin Luther and modern progressives, their canon is their version of Jesus. But what if those who do critical scholarship, their canon is, you know, Rudolf Bultmann? Hmm. That's a really good point. Uh, And as you were saying that, it struck me, maybe we can dial up the intensity for a moment. We've been talking about 
sort of the new progressive movement and now historical criticism might even someone who believes in something like inerrancy or infallibility or the just the belief that the bible has one single unified theological message and might someone who even believes in that be in this sense a neo-marcionite um, because they claim not to cut apart cut away any scripture and there is a significant difference is that they claim not to cut apart any scripture cut out any scripture but realistically everyone ends up cutting out passages of scripture um, so for instance uh, Ecclesiastes says that life is totally meaningless um, that there is no purpose to life etc now, this is not the kind of claim that a John Piper, who believes passionately in inerrancy, would agree with. Um, he would say that life does have a meaning and a purpose, and that purpose is pointing to the glory of God or whatever. Um, that is explicitly the opposite of what Ecclesiastes says. And I'm sure that he's not unaware that Ecclesiastes says it. He would probably just say, well... We interpret that in the light of other passages of scripture, passages that he might think um, teach something like all life points to the glory of God. And so is John Piper, inerrantist extraordinaire, also a neo-Marcionite in this sense? Well, maybe. Or another less philosophically different issue is, like this is less about philosophical differences and more about explicit contradictions. I've heard you talk before about Nehemiah and Jonah. Yeah, so um, I love the book of Nehemiah. It's beautifully written, but the message when you get right down to it in Nehemiah is that foreigners should always be excluded. That's the climax of the book, is that Israel becomes faithful again when all the men make a covenant to put away their foreign wives, is the language that the text uses, and even put away the children born to the foreign wives, um, divorce them all, kick them all out, make them go home. Um, the message of Jonah, on the other hand, is that God loves the foreigners, um, and that foreigners can be just as righteous as Israelites if they are taught the basic truths of Yahwistic monotheism. Um, Late in Isaiah makes the same claim that those on the ethnic Israel who aren't obedient will be cast out, and anyone who wants to who is obedient can be brought in. And so the difference between Nehemiah and Jonah is an explicit contradiction um, between theological positions, and Jesus does take up one of those theological positions and says this is the right one. So if we're all Marcionites then none, none of us are Marcionites. Yeah, maybe maybe Marcionism is less, you are a Marcionite, I am not a Marcionite, or vice versa. Maybe Marcionism is a way, uh, is a pole of thinking, right? It's like, we don't want to be Marcionites, we don't want to exclude texts of scripture, um, but we haven't found yet a way to do that. And so maybe... The goal is to try to free ourselves from Marcionism by finding a new theology of scripture which can embrace the entire set of texts without um, cutting out any of them. Maybe. Maybe it can happen. It hasn't happened yet, but maybe you listener are the one who can do it. So I would have to... I mean, I don't necessarily disagree that this is the problem that we all find ourselves in. I don't think that it's helpful to use Marcionism as like the label or as the like the pole on which we're all trying to position ourselves um, because it ultimately just becomes meaningless whenever we remove all of the isms that the church rejected and say it's just about cutting out pieces of scripture that don't mesh with your particular philosophy or ethic or what have you. If Marcionism just means rejecting pieces of scripture that are inconsistent with your beliefs, then I don't think it's helpful to call it Marcionism. Uh, because it, 
Marcionism has to connect back to Marcion and the controversies in some way. So I think we need to just completely get rid of that label. Isn't that, I mean, that's kind of what he did. He got rid of things that didn't cohere with his belief. I mean, it's very distant. So maybe this is the slipperiness of words like, yeah, do we use it or do we not? I think that's a valid point. And maybe we should get rid of the word Marcionism because um, people aren't saying reject the creator God of the Old Testament, which, as Tyler pointed out earlier, was one of the main points of Marcionism. So now we've hopefully sufficiently muddied the waters for you. And you've seen the inconsistencies of both progressives and conservatives and everyone on and off of that spectrum. You've seen inconsistencies in what Gerhard and I both say. So what we hope is that through this episode, you'll learn more about Marcionism, learn more about Marcion himself to be a bit more charitable towards him, and learn about the affirmations and rejections that the church made back in Marcion's day. They explicitly denied the idea that the Old Testament was not a part of our canon. They denied the idea that the Yahweh of the Old Testament is not Jesus of the New Testament. These are one and the same. And so however we choose to navigate the extremely difficult issue of Old Testament versus New Testament, we need to be careful to make sure that we are faithful to the tradition that we've been handed, the apostolic tradition, um, and the apostles viewed the Old Testament as their canon as well. And we are a part of the faith that, by Jesus's commissioning, they founded. So, as a fellow member of that faith, we hope that you do nuanced and complex and hopefully creative new approaches to the theology of scripture we are excited to hear what you think about scripture and how you can try to hold together the theologies of the old and new testament and within the old testament itself and within the new testament itself we're always interested in hearing that so if you want to come and drop a comment on our podcastica patristica facebook page we would love to hear from you and we will interact with you that is true we will interact with you And with that, we will let you go for now. Bye.